Heavenly Father, these are weighty words that we consider. They're hard words for us to hear because they help us to understand our true condition in this world. And they challenge us because we recognize that the struggles of our lives and the difficulties of our lives are encapsulated within these verses. And so I pray, Lord, in the face of those trials, in the face of those difficulties, that you would fill us with all joy and peace in believing, believing what is before us here today in Psalm 90. May all praise go to you. May Christ be exalted. And may your spirit work in every heart. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it's a sincere privilege and pleasure to be here with you today, to be unfolding the word of God to you, brothers and sisters and friends. As we begin our time considering the text, I would like us to think about two key basic desires of the human heart, two core desires of the human heart. The first desire I'd like us to consider is the desire for happiness. This is a universal desire. Everybody has it. If we're given the opportunity to choose between happiness or unhappiness, 10 times out of 10, we'll choose happiness. Throughout the millennia, luminaries in the church have written about this desire from Augustine to Blaise Pascal to in our modern day, John Piper. And I could, I could sit here and quote to you the most poignant uh, words from each of those men, but I'll just ask you to search within your own heart and see the actings and movements of your own heart and recognize that you desire universally and at all times to be happy. I desire that as well. That's the first desire. Second desire is the desire to have a meaningful life, to have a purposeful life, to have something that lasts after we're gone. And that's nearly as universal of a desire, and I say nearly as universal because there might be some particular kind of really selfish, really hedonistic person that really doesn't care about that second desire, that second aspect, but in the main, mankind created in the image of God desires to live a meaningful life. We want something to last after we're gone. We want our life to have purpose. And because these are desires that come from being created in the image of God, they're good, but they present a problem for us. They present a significant problem for us. Because alongside these desires, another reality of life Realities of living in this world are, as Matt mentioned in the pastoral prayer, sin and death. At every turn, sin and death come in and oppose these desires for happiness and for meaning. They stop us in our tracks. They thwart our plans. They create a sense of futility. And if nothing else, at the end of our life, they cut us off. 
They keep us from being able to further the purposes that we have in life, to realize the dreams, realize the hopes that we have in life. So if there's anything bad in our lives, if there's any, anything sad in our lives, it's because of those twin forces, those twin realities of sin and death. Take all of these things together. Take that war between our desires, even good desires, and the realities of life in this world. Take those things together, and it can make life feel like a wilderness. We don't have what we need in the wilderness. We don't have what we want in the wilderness, or so it seems. And so the question comes, how are we to live with meaning? How are we to live with happiness? How are we to live well in the wilderness? I think Moses, as we come to his words, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses is going to have some timeless wisdom for us here today to understand how to live well in a life that can so often feel like a wilderness. Moses begins in verse 1, speaking about God, our everlasting dwelling place. Verse 1 and 2, God, our everlasting dwelling place. He says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. If we're going to answer these questions, if we're going to answer that question, how do we live well in the wilderness, surely it's going to have everything to do with God. And it's going to have everything to do with God because as it says in verse 2, He is the Creator. He formed the earth and the world. He is the most ancient. He is the fountain of wisdom. Moses here writes about the mountains and he specifically references the mountains because in the Hebrew mind, the mountains were the most ancient part of the earth. So he sets up a contrast there. The most ancient is compared with the preeminently ancient God and this preeminently ancient one, the one who is, the one who was, the one who always will be, the self-existent, eternal one, the Lord, the master. He is the one who is the dwelling place of his people. This reference to the dwelling place also likely has reference to the fact that when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were wandering in their own wilderness, God was their only support. God was their only refuge. And so what we see is that God, the everlasting dwelling place, is the creator. He's the master. He is the sovereign one over his creation. And some of you may have picked up on this. In verses 1 and 2, we have a fairly neutral presentation of who God is. He's majestic. He's glorious. But there's not necessarily a sharp and clear statement of exactly how God relates to us. How does this God relate to us? He, he's been a dwelling place in all generations, but that could be a very generic statement. So how does this God relate to to us. We're going to start to see how God relates to every man and woman born into this world in verses 3 to 
11, verses 3 to 11, present to us life in the wilderness. Life in the wilderness. And first, life in the wilderness is life in Adam. Life in the wilderness is life in Adam, with Adam as our federal head, as the one who represents us. Verse 3 says this, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. That was verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, there's a direct reference to Adam, and there's an implicit reference to to Adam. So the direct reference to Adam is return, O children of man. That word man can otherwise be translated Adam. Return, O children of Adam. And so Moses, the writer of the first five books of the scriptures, the writer of the Pentateuch, the writer of Genesis, is making direct reference to Genesis chapter 3. What happened in Genesis chapter 3? Adam transgressed the one command, the one negative command that God had given him, when God had said, on the day that you eat of that tree, you shall surely die, so don't eat of it. God had expected and asked and obligated Adam to perfect, perpetual, entire, and exact obedience. But Adam transgressed. And so part of that curse that was pronounced in the garden after Adam's sin, was that the man who was made from the dust would then return to the dust in death. He was never meant to return to the dust in death, but there he was returning to the dust in death. And all of us, all of mankind, all of his progeny with him, when Adam fell, we all fell with him. Through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin, and all men died because all sin. So life in the wilderness, life for all of us, is primarily, first off, life in Adam. That is how we are all born into the world. As Moses shifts, he shifts now in verse 4 to a consideration once again of God. He says, and he does this to set up a contrast He does this to set up a contrast between man, the dust creature, the dust to dust creature, and God, the everlasting, eternal one. He says that a thousand years is like nothing to God. In fact, it's like a watch in the night. That term, a watch in the night, meant a a period of three hours. And so a thousand years to God is like three hours. It's really like nothing as he stands outside of time. So here we have God to whom a thousand years is nothing. And then we have man to whom a thousand years is everything. Because as we'll see later, we live 70 to 80 years. And Moses follows up that comment about the everlasting nature of God, about how he sees time. He follows that up with a set of three similes to further that effect. He says, you sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. So man, 
all of us, all of us born into this world, were like a dry tree in the desert when a flood comes, a, a deluge comes, a flood comes and sweeps it away. And that's it. That's the end of the tree. We're like a dream. We're fleeting. And then we're like the quickest growing, quickest dying grass imaginable. 6 a.m., we start to sprout up. 12 p.m., we peak. 6 p.m., we're withered and dead. That is life in Adam. This is the life that Adam's sin has produced. And not only are there physical effects to our sin, but there's a, a spiritual effect and a spiritual nature to our sin and its effects. We know that as we, we read the New Testament, we understand that it's not just physical death that was produced by Adam's sin. Spiritual death was produced by Adam's sin. And so that's how Paul in Ephesians 2 can say, we were born dead in trespasses and sins. That's the reality for all of us. It's physical and spiritual death. And interestingly, Moses is, Moses is writing at the end of the wilderness wandering. So we think about the life of Moses, the first 40 years in Egypt, second 40 years in Midian, last 40 years wandering the wilderness with the Israelites. And what happened in the wilderness wandering? In the wilderness wandering, all of the generation of people, every man and woman over 20 years of age, was shut out of entering the promised land because of their disobedience. So, Moses, as someone who lived until 120 years old and died at the edge of the wilderness, probably, most likely, saw more death than anyone who has ever lived. He saw the bodies fall in the wilderness. He understood the reality of life in Adam, and he was given a graphic picture of that because he lived not only under the curse pronounced in Adam, but under the judgment that God had pronounced on the people of Israel. But even though he has that experience, he doesn't solely rely on that to tell us what life in the wilderness is like. Instead, he peels back the veil and tells us this is why things are the way they are in the wilderness. It's not just Adam's sin, and I'm not just going to rely on what I've seen, all of the bodies I've seen fall in the wilderness, all of the people I've seen turn into dust. He says in verse 7 that this happens because of a very particular reason. God brings judgment on sin, on our own sin, not just Adam's sin. Verse 7, we're brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. The Proverbs say that the spirit of the man, of a man, is like a lamp, the lamp of the Lord. So the Lord goes in as the omniscient one, as the one who is not only the everlasting dwelling place, but is also a master who's the creator who knows us, who knows us intimately, who sees all of our thoughts, words, 
and deeds, knows every motive and intention of our hearts. And though we might try to hide our sins in a back room, though we might think that there are things that we can hide from others around us, nothing is hidden from God. Everything is clear and visible in His sight. He comes into the room of our lives, the back room of our lives, and He flicks the light switch on. There's nowhere, there's nowhere to hide from God when we're living life in Adam. Not only is life in Adam guilty, not only is life in the wilderness guilty, but it's also disappointing. It's tremendously disappointing. Verses 9 and 10 say this, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Life ends with a sigh, not only because our physical strength is is spent, but life may also end with a sigh because of disappointment. Here were the Israelites on the edge of the promised land, all their lives or most of their lives, but unable to enter in because of their disobedience. So the thing that they had most hoped for, the thing that was really physically attainable, there was nothing physically barring them from entering the promised land. The thing that they had most hoped for, they didn't get and they were shut out of it because of death. And for some of us, life, life is like that. We feel not only the physical pain and decay of life lived in a world that had its trajectory set by Adam, but we feel the disappointment of that world. We feel the dashed hopes, the dashed dreams. And more than that, even if we were to live 70, 80, 120 years like Moses, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really provide us more of an opportunity to live a fulfilled and happy life. Because what Moses says here is all you get with that additional 10 years, all you get with that additional even 40 years is toil and trouble. It's just work and hardship. That is life in the wilderness. And at the end of it, it's all too brief. They're soon gone, and we fly away. It's a bleak picture, isn't it? Life life in Adam presents us with a bleak picture. This is a bleak reality, a bleak set of realities. And Moses ends this section with this rhetorical question. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? It's a little bit of a mouthful. It's a little bit of a strange question. So I'm going to try to just distill this down for us and say that what Moses is essentially saying is who really takes into account that life is like this because of sin? Who really takes into account that life is as we saw it described 
in verses 3 to 10 because of sin. Excuse me, because of sin. And the answer would be, no one really does. Because remember, Moses is writing the man of God, Moses the man of God is writing a prophet inspired of God, given direct revelation from God, a man who knew God face to face, who had first seen God revealed to him in the burning bush. Moses is writing to a very small group of people on the face of the earth. Very few people had the opportunity for revelation, true revelation from God, a true word from God about life and death and reality. And so, in mass, mankind, apart from the very small nation of Israel, who was said to be the least of all the peoples, in mass, mankind was stumbling in the darkness, mostly the darkness of paganism, the darkness of mysticism, stumbling to death without considering that death was caused by sin, namely the sin of the first man, Adam, and then further, their own sin. It's a bleak picture once again. Life is brief. Life is hard. Life ends because of sin. Life, as we are born into this world, is a life in the wilderness, a life in the wilderness which Adam's sin produced. So what, what can we do? What can we do? We need to know that God is gracious to us. We need to know that God is gracious to us. And we'll see in a moment in verses 12 to 17 that Moses knew that God was gracious to him. And that's why he prays the way he does in verses 12 to 17. Moses knew that God was gracious to him because of a number of events in Moses' Moses's life. But we could distill that down. We could distill Moses' knowledge of God's grace towards him down to the declaration that God had made to Moses. Moses was given a declaration from God about who God is in his essence. He was given this in Exodus chapter 34. Moses asked for a greater revelation of who God was, and God said, I'll give this to you. I'll show you my glory, but I'm going to do so in a veiled way, and I'm going to define myself to you in words. And so God, Yahweh, in, verses, in verse 6 of Exodus 34, begins by saying this. He describes himself as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And so Moses knew that God was a God of grace. The only one who has anything to fear from this God of grace, as majestic as he is, is the one who will not seek him for grace. 
So that's what Moses knew about God. That's what Moses knew about God's grace, about his loving kindness, about his steadfast love. And us, for us in the New, new Covenant, Christian believer, we have an even greater promise, a clearer promise of God's grace towards us, a grace by which we can approach the throne of this majestic God. We have the promise of grace given to us in the one who did consider the power of God's anger, who did know God's wrath according to the fear that is due to his name. Why do we think that the Lord Jesus, when he was in the garden of Gethsemane, his own garden of temptation, where he did not fail, why do we think that the Lord Jesus sweated as though great drops of blood were coming down to the ground? Why do we think that the Lord Jesus pled, though he was fully God, though he was fully submitted to the will of God, why did he ask that there would be another way other than him taking the cup of God's wrath? He asked because he fully considered the power of God's anger against sin. He was the one who was in the bosom of the Father from all eternity, in perfect, intimate fellowship and communion with the Father, intimately acquainted in the joy and intimacy of the Trinity. And so he knew the character of God. He knew what was due to God, being fully God and being with God from all eternity. And so knowing the obedience that was due to God, he knew exactly what wrath was going to be poured out for disobedience to God. And still he went to the cross and he did not fail. He did not fail in that garden of temptation and he didn't fail at the tree as Adam failed at his tree. He perfectly fulfilled the law. He lived in perfect, perpetual, entire, and exact obedience. And so by faith in him, we receive grace and we know that we relate to God as a God of grace. We can boldly approach his throne, even as Moses boldly approaches the throne in verses 12 to 17. If verses 3 to 11 were life in the wilderness, verses 12 through 17 are life in the wilderness renewed. This is how you pray when you know that God is gracious and you are seeking to see life in the wilderness renewed. And he's going to ask for six things. The first thing is for wisdom. He asks that he would be able to understand, that they would be able to understand the brevity of life, the brevity of the conditions of life given to them in Adam, that, that they would be able to understand how short it is and to be able to use it well that they would be able to redeem the time in the evil days. The days that they lived in were, were like Moses described in verses 3 to 11. 
And similarly, Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians that we live in evil days. And so we need to make the most of our time. They're evil days and they're short days. And so we can pray this with Moses. Lord, teach me to number my days in the evil of this earth that I can use my days well. And he gets more urgent in his next plea. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Lord, in light of all of the evil that we've seen in the wilderness, show us mercy. Give us something different, Lord, please. And we can pray the same. As much evil as we might have seen in our life, as much hardship and difficulty as we might have faced in our life, we can go to a God of grace and know that he hears our prayer. We can go to a God of grace and pray for our physical needs, pray for our spiritual needs, pray for all of these things, pray for a renewal of grace in the wilderness of our lives. Next, Moses asks probably the the most famous petition from Psalm 90. And that is that God would satisfy them in the morning with his steadfast love, that they would be able to rejoice and be glad all their days. He prays for satisfaction. It's just the reality that life in this world is unpredictable, that we don't have control. We we like to think that we do but we just don't, and difficulties and challenges and trials make us recognize that we don't have control over the outcomes of our lives. We, we don't have a perfect ability to fulfill our hopes. We don't have a perfect ability to fulfill our desires. And so we need to pray to not be satisfied in the fleeting hopes of this world, but to be satisfied in the steadfast love of the Lord. That's his loving kindness, his graciousness. And to us who are in Christ, that steadfast love is a steadfast love that was set upon us from all eternity. It's a steadfast love that saw us wandering the wilderness of this world without hope and without God in the world. And because of nothing good in us, because of nothing good that we had done, decided to pluck us out of that desperate state, decided to adopt us so that God would be our Father It's a love which justified us. It's a love which counts us righteous in Christ so that we have peace with God. It's a love that set us apart for God's purposes, for for usefulness, for his purposes at the beginning of our Christian lives and continues to sanctify and use us throughout our lives. It's a love that will not let us go. It's a love that, as David says in Psalm 23, pursues us 
all the days of our lives. It's a love that works everything together for good. It's a love that will give us everything we need so that we will get to glory and that everything we need at times is and are the difficulties and trials of the wilderness. He provides us the endurance to get through and he provides, he pr- provides us those hardships and trials to sanctify us, to keep us weaned from the world. It's a comprehensive, complete love that we have in Christ because all of God's wrath has been poured out on him and all we know is grace. Ultimately, this love provides for us a total renewal of our lives in this wilderness. There will be no more wilderness soon, very soon. Because of the brevity of our lives, we can say soon there will be no more wilderness. And what will that, what will that look like? That'll look like Revelation 21. Revelation 21, 1 to 4. These are the words of John. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And here's the renewal. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. That's coming soon. Moses closes by speaking more to the issue of usefulness, meaning, significance, the significance of our lives and of our efforts in our lives. In verse 16, he says, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the works, the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. I think that the reality of verse 16, as we look at it, fulfilled in the span of history will be very encouraging for us. So here's Moses on the edge of the promised land, having seen many hard years in the wilderness himself. He's not going to enter the promised land because he had been shut out because of God's discipline on him for striking the rock in anger rather than speaking to it. And so he's looking, he's looking forward. He's thinking forward with this prayer. Let your work be shown to your servants. Yes, as much time as I have left, show me your work, Lord, and show your glorious power to their children. And God absolutely did. God answered this prayer in an exceeding, 
abundant way beyond all that Moses could ask or think. Because what happened next? The people enter the promised land. The time of the judges comes. That's a bad time, but God's still working in it. God establishes the kingdom. There are exiles. There are terrible things that happen. But through all of that difficulty, what comes eventually? In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. And he sent forth his son, born of a woman, to fulfill the promise that he had made in Genesis 3.15. Right after that curse had been spoken on, on Adam because of his sin, God said, I am going to make all things new one day by a seed who will come and crush the head of the serpent who has just deceived you. And so when Moses prays us, let your glorious power be shown to your children, God's glorious power was shown to them in abundant ways, in the establishment of the people in the land, in the preservation of the the messianic line so that Christ could be born and the whole cosmos could be renewed. Verse 17 has more to do in some sense with, with our works. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. How does God establish our works? In the new covenant, God establishes our works in many ways, but in two key ways as we consider our relationship to the principles in this text. The first way that God establishes the work of our hands or makes it so that they'll, they'll last, so that they'll have significance, the first way is that he raised Christ from the dead. Isn't this the logic in 1 Corinthians 15? Adam, Adam Paul, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the reason, the reason why our labor in the Lord is not in vain is because Christ has been risen from the dead, and he's going to come back and make all things new. He has obtained victory on our behalf. So our labor in the Lord is not in vain. So definitively speaking, objectively speaking, our labor in the Lord is not in vain because God has raised Christ Christ from the dead. Our faith is not in vain. Our labor is not in vain. That's one way that God has established the works of our hands in the new covenant. The second way that God has established the works of our hands in the new covenant is by giving us a whole host of commands, both all of the commands in the New Testament and then all of the Old Testament commands refracted through the light of the new covenant. He's given us all of these things so that we can know when we walk in obedience no matter how small our obedience is, it contributes to the building of a kingdom which cannot be shaken, a kingdom that far outlasts our physical lives and a kingdom which we will live in for all eternity. How does that work? How does God establish our works by his commands so that even the smallest efforts of our life Lives are meaningful. Let's think about someone at work. Right? We're we're told in the New Testament to labor 
honestly, to labor with our own hands, to work heartily as unto the Lord and not men. And that can seem like a very small thing when tomorrow you show up at your job and it's the exact same thing that it was last Monday. That can seem like a, a futile thing, a difficult thing. Like the thing that you're doing doesn't really matter. What matters is, is missionaries out there on the mission field and pastors preaching in pulpits and pastors doing big things, whatever it might be, right? But the reality is a life lived in faithfulness to God in small acts of obedience accumulates its impact in imperceptible ways throughout time. It accumulates its impact in imperceptible ways throughout time. So three years into mundane weeks at work, your coworker asks you, you're always joyful at work. You're always productive at work. You always have a good attitude. Why? Why do you always have a good attitude? And the reality that Jesus talked about comes to light. It comes to, to manifestation. The reality, which is that people will see your good deeds in the smallest things of life and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That provides an opportunity to witness. Why are you different? Why has the gospel changed you? What has changed you? And that opens up a window and an opportunity to speak forth the unsearchable riches of Christ. The same could be said about the family. Fathers, mothers, all of the, the things that you do each day that seem small. Husbands, wives, all of the things that you do each day which seem small. To love and to preserve a marriage that glorifies God. That has an accumulating impact over time because in those acts of obedience, we attach ourselves to that kingdom which cannot be shaken. We contribute to the building of that kingdom which cannot be shaken. In the church, we're given many commands. We're told to preserve unity. We're told to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. We're told to speak upbuilding words. We're told to utilize our gifts for the building up of the body. And again, some of those things can seem so small. A kind word spoken for the sake of encouragement. Laboring on your own to hone a gift. Doing something in a back room somewhere that nobody can see. All of these things seem so small to us, but all of them are incredibly and lastingly significant. They have ripple effects because, again, what did Jesus say? He said, the world will know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. So any small act of love, any humble act of love, any utilization of your gifts and abilities that God has given you is tremendously significant. It contributes to the building of that kingdom which cannot be shaken, the kingdom which is forever. So take heart in all of the small, humble efforts of obedience of your life because in all of those things, 
Our labor in the Lord is not in vain. So how do we live well in the wilderness of this life? We recognize that life in Adam is desperate. We flee to the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, for forgiveness and for renewal. We enjoy his love every day of our lives, and we labor knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you that you've done all that you've done for us in Christ. It's beyond comprehension, and that's why Paul can say that what Christ has done, it's the unsearchable riches of Christ. They are the unsearchable riches of Christ. They can be looked at from so many different angles and motivate us and produce gladness in us in so many different ways. So we thank you for him, and we pray, Lord, that you would encourage us, even in this next week, to enjoy his love, to consider the height and length and depth and the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, and to labor in him, knowing that our labor in him is not in vain. Amen.